This is Body Talk, where we explore your inner universe. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's installment of Body Talk. I'm David Lasondak, structural integrator and fascia specialist at the Center for Integrative Medicine at UPMC in Pittsburgh. And today, I am really happy to have on board the Professor Emeritus, uh, excuse me, Professor Emerita uh, from the University of Miami School of Medicine. And a lot of you may know her. Some of you will be meeting her for the first time. Welcome to the show, Carol Davis. Thank you, David. It's really great to be here. Thanks. So uh, we were talking about what we were going to talk about, and you pitched me with a really, really great idea uh, in terms of manual therapy land, uh, which is that random, randomized clinical trials are the gold standard in medicine and science in general, and that um, and there's a paucity of good RCTs in the manual therapy world. And I thought, yeah, that's something I want to dig into because you have a lot to share about that topic. And let's start, though, with the basics. Uh, what is a randomized clinical trial? It's a level of evidence. Um, let, let's start back in the, in the uh, early uh, 1900s um, when um, Flexner came out with the Flexner Report stating that there were a lot of medical schools that were um, teaching very biased kinds of information to physicians and that, um, and that a lot of it was snake oil and patients were being uh, conned into accepting therapies that had no basis in evidence. And he looked around to what school seemed to be doing the best job in um, giving evidence for the therapies that were suggested. And he, he landed on Johns Hopkins University. And Johns Hopkins, he said, had the very best curriculum because they based their, what they taught on scientific evidence. And um, that kind of evidence, I don't remember exactly what he, how he described it, but, um, it was the schools were told were shamed in the closing, including um, uh, a whole cadre of schools that were bringing benefit to patients. And I'm thinking specifically um, the homeopathy schools, uh, Hahnemann in Philadelphia, the chiropractic schools, and um, and the and the osteopathic schools got a kind of a stigma because they weren't medical, they weren't the same kind of medical science. They were based on some strange understanding of AT still that was kind of like chiropractic and it had to do with this fascist stuff that mm -hmm. was an inert material in the body and that, and that the only real medical school was Johns Hopkins. And so um, Hahnemann, you know, uh, and, and other schools just kind of had to curtail their, their activities. But it wasn't until the um, uh, 19, uh, until 1979, I, 
I looked it up because I wondered where, where did evidence-based medicine, when did it start? Yeah. Then there's this article, I'll give you the reference for, the levels of evidence and their role in evidence-based medicine. It's published by the, the Plastic Reconstruction Surgery Journal. And they say in the histories of levels of evidence, levels of evidence were originally described in a report by the Canadian Task Force on the Periodic, periodic Health Examination in 1979. The report's purpose was to develop recommendations on the periodic health exam and base those recommendations on evidence in the medical literature. In other words, how do you examine patients? Um, what, what do you include in your examination? What tests do you include in, in your examination? And they developed a, a rating, um, a system of rating evidence because what they were trying to do was trying to figure out a hierarchical system, system to, to uh, get rid of bias and individual opinion mm -hmm. in what should be done in medicine. So you're trying to determine the effectiveness of a particular intervention by looking at what kind of evidence uh, seems to hold up. And, but it wasn't until uh, and, and they described different levels of evidence and gave them a grade A. Mm -hmm. uh, now this is so this forth. is in the this is in the 1979. 1979. So now, early now to, 1920s to, was Flexner. Right. So 1920s and Flexner, though, to be fair, yeah, um, there was a lot of snake oil back then. There was indeed. I mean, with you know the potions, and I don't think I think leeches were passe by then. So do you think that maybe what happened is some of the legit snake oil uh, versus the, the stuff that we could quantifiably measure and say worked and, and some of these other things like osteopathy, homeopathy, and so on and so forth kind of got caught in the middle of those two things and yeah. were dragged to the, uh, to the wastebasket side because they were kind of outliers in both? Yeah, because in the, in the 1800s, uh, physicians tried to figure out what to do from, from understanding the body from, from, from the, the 1500s, 1600s, where they took a scalpel and opened up the body and tried to figure out how the body worked. And they, they saw it very much as a machine. But they thought, well, if there are, if there are bad humors in the body, if right. the blood is contaminated, let's get some leeches to pull out the blood in order to be able to, um, to get rid of the toxins. Well, that then became an archaic kind of idea. Well, how in the, why in the world would you ever do that? And it turns out that there was this aspect of using leeches that was very beneficial. What? The fact is that they had this anticoagulant kind of factor in their bite that um, benefited healthcare. And so a lot of things were thrown out. Because so leeches, wait, so what you're saying is that there's an aspect of leeches that are good for blood clots, but you're not recommending that. Well, there are vascular surgeons and there are parts of vascular surgery that are bringing back the use of leeches. Oh my God. In, in circulatory problems. And it's, I think it's mostly in the very fine vessels. Um, I haven't looked that up, so I can't tell you the science <laughs> it. But I will tell you a contemporary example of this. Okay. A contemporary example of this. That there's some interesting science coming out of Germany. Uh, William uh, 
Becker, I want to say, but I'm not sure, where they're using light as an as an anti as a as a um, as a as an antibacterial ultraviolet light. We know ultraviolet light kills bacteria. Right. So they were taking blood and they were taking blood out of a person who had a bacterial infection, uh, examining or giving it ultraviolet radiation and then putting it back in the in the body. And it seemed to work pretty well. And so then he began to use an IV and interject laser. He got a machine together and, and had has canisters of light, red, blue, green, yellow, ultraviolet, and infrared. And as an as an intravenous, and they're doing studies, especially in cancer research, of showing that this light has a positive beneficial effect from MRI from from excellent testing on uh, tumors and on cellular response. They're using it with autoimmune problems. Wow! And so Trump comes out and says, "Well, maybe you could swallow some uh, Lysol, or or maybe you could." You know, shine a, shine a light down there. Shine yeah. a light on it. Mm -hmm. Shine this ultraviolet light on it, and both of them get thrown out <laughs> in the literature, of course, because they're mm -hmm. so archaic. Uh, mm -hmm. And of course, the Lysol is, or I don't know whether he's chloride. Uh, well, well, the bleach thing. And, and to be fair, yeah. there's a wonderful song by the Dead Milkmen called "I'm So Bored I'm Drinking Bleach." But anyway, uh, <laughs> that was. So I just kept thinking about that the whole time. But <laughs> the, the ultraviolet light thing. I went, wait a minute, that's not a kooky idea. There's that's actually right. there's something to that, and okay. uh, you know. Uh, so, I don't know anyway. that the science is there. So, so, so these scientists in Germany have these different banks of light that bring the light into the body through an IV. Now, is that IV going into a vein, an artery? Directly into the cubital space, into a okay. vein. I've had okay. this treatment. And oh, wow. I have. And it's in the United States now. There are, are most of the people who are using it are naturopaths and functional medicine docs. That makes sense because we have so many limited ideas about how to get chronic Lyme, uh, infections from the bacteria of chronic Lyme and, uh, and then other autoimmune diseases under control. And uh, the immune system just shuts down. And so we need to have help in hel helping to kill these bacteria. And um, so stay tuned, but, but that's yeah. all just a description of how these, this evidence, this idea about evidence-based, what we're trying to do is get rid of bias. We're trying to find ways of, of collecting data. And for medical science, out of this model, evidence-based meant statistics. And what statistics mean is randomized trials. And randomized trials means you're gonna try something with somebody and you're gonna see if it works, but we don't know whether it works because of the active thing that you're doing, the experimental variable, or whether there's some contamination, there's something else that's causing the outcome. So we say, okay, well, well to get rid of that, what we'll do is we'll make, we'll give the treatment to one group of people and we'll try to match that, the people that we give to, to a control group and we won't give them the treatment. We'll, yeah, they get a, uh, they get a sham. They get it, or they it. get a sham. Yeah. And sometimes and sh the problem with sham is legion, especially in acupuncture. Oh, yeah. No, we do a lot of acupuncture research in my department. We don't do any. Yeah. Well, we, we don't do any ESI research, but yeah, and trying to find people who've never had an experience of it. 
Yeah. What, what, it's been it's difficult. Because yeah. Because the outcomes show that it's helpful uh, in, in, in many cases. So that's, that's that we got, Sackett came onto the scene. All healthcare workers who are involved in research know Sackett's rules, golden rule. And Sackett is a, is a, a, a researcher who came onto the scene in 1989. So we have 1979 Canada, Mm-hmm. And then 1989, an article on levels of em- evidence in antithrombotic agents. And he was okay. in chest. Um, and, and both systems placed randomized controlled trials at the highest level and case series or expert opinions at the lowest level. So we've got a golden level. We've got first at the, it's at the triangle. And um, the triangle at the very, very top is not the randomized trial, but a systematic review of many randomized trials, which look at, okay. which evaluate the quality of the trial, mm-hmm. and then look at the evidence that the trial came up with in order to be able to say that the quality of the evidence and statistical significance to say, yes, that's yeah. that's a good it, trial. It, I, and, I'm going to put this in perspective for the listener here. I can remember okay. way, way back in my early science days, the early 1990s, um, I came across a study that said massage did not increase circulation, didn't do anything to improve circulation. And I thought, how could that possibly be true? So right. I got a copy of the study and I read through it and the uh, their study employed light effleurage, so the most <laughs> superficial see. stroking you could possibly yeah. do, and that proved massage doesn't increase circulation. And I thought right. that's just a bad experiment. That's what that yeah. is. And so, so you have to teach people how to read the science, mm-hmm. and you have to teach people how to evaluate the quality of the science, and so. In the at the top of the pyramid is a systematic review. Uh, the Cochrane Foundation is is the healthcare group that has developed um, a, a a pool of of um, of scientists, and it's um, it, the Cochrane database of systematic reviews is the leading journal and database for systematic reviews in healthcare. And they they came out in the nineteen in the in the nineteen nineties. When I was doing my research as a university professor, you know, you have to publish. You have mm-hmm. to do research and you have to publish. And I couldn't get my myofascial release studies published by my journal because they Ooh. said I didn't have, I didn't have enough subjects, or I, um, I, I, um, I did. I had enough subjects in the initial trial, but then when I went back to retest and retest, stu- they were students and they faded away, and mm-hmm. and so. Um, I began to see well. Well, what what databases do we have? We have PubMed. And we have um, all different kinds of of of, um, of of Medline and so forth. What and then the, the Cochrane database started to come up, and they started looking at alternative and complementary therapies. And I thought, oh, well, this is going to be great because they're looking at evidence of acupuncture, particularly that was the one that was was um, um, viewed systematically. And, and most of all, because acupuncture really did show outcomes that helped people and they couldn't explain it. They just couldn't explain it. So um, the Cochrane database came in, uh, into view and these are systematic reviews of randomized controlled trials 
with, with placebo. So the funny thing about randomized trials with acupuncture is that they find the acupuncture points and they needle them. And then they look at outcomes for, for the value of acupuncture for a, a given problem. But then the sham is they don't do the points. They, they might needle, but they might not needle the exact point. Or they, they put a tube, the, the yes. needle tube on the point. And mm-hmm. so they're pressing, they're doing acupressure. Yes. And, and then and there's the one that the it, is, it gives you, it, it's a, it's a tube with a needle in it that just gives you a quick jab, but the needle yeah. doesn't stay in. That's the right. other one that gets used. Right. Yeah. So, you know, and then that study came out <laughs> where, um, in where a, a New York times journalist had a knee problem and went to three different physical therapists, got three different diagnoses and three different plans of care. And that hit the New York Times. And so physical therapy got all up in arms and said, we've got to start being very systematic. If we've got, if we got people with this kind of problem, we've got to say, what are the steps that we need to do to evaluate so that we're not seen as quacks, that we're just not doing whatever we wanna do. And so physical therapy started to become very, very rigid. And this would be, this would be when you were involved with the physical therapy department at the university of Miami about this time, right? Okay. And I've been involved with physical, with three major physical therapy departments in my whole career. So, and as a faculty member, I've always had to do research. So anyway, back to the, I know I'm jumping around a lot. Uh, That's good. We're following back to the random, to the, to the, um, the pyramid the triangles, <laughs> the systematic reviews at the top, then there's a randomized controlled trial, and mm-hmm. then cohort studies, uh, looking at, at groups of people, um, and, and not so much looking at the way you, you uh, did it, but working at the out, we're looking at the outcomes of, of, of people who, who receive structural integration, people who receive Barnes myofascial release. Um, what, are, what are the studies saying that, that have been published, they might not be really uh, um, well done studies according to the criteria, but what do they say about the outcomes? Then case control studies, controlling um, well the, the testing that you're doing and the documentation of the results, case control studies, and then case series, case reports, uh, retrospective, looking back at what we did and what, what the outcome was, and then at the very bottom, editorials and expert opinion. So that's the that's the hierarchy of levels of evidence in healthcare and evidence-based medicine. Um, so when we talk about this and we talk about how do we become more systematic to try to get rid of bias and try to show that really what we're doing is not snake oil, that what we're doing has some scientific value, we really talk about organizing people, organizing our thoughts, organizing what data we collect, organizing how we record that data and report that data, and analyzing it with with statistical methods, and then reporting our results in quality journals. And journals uh, get their bread and butter and their their reputations by the, the, the value, the quality of the articles that they publish. 
And there are high level journals, and then there are lesser level journals. Um, and um, that's the way the system works. So I did, as I said, I did a myofascial release study, mm-hmm. trying to obey the rules. Because when you decided you're going to play their game, you're going to play their game by their rules, not by your rules. Yeah. It was a very horizontal study. I took students in physical therapy at, at two major universities in Miami. And I evaluated, uh, I asked them that if they thought that they had um, hamstring length problems to sign up for this study. And of course the students, these young athletes signed up for the study. And we took goniometric measurements of their hamstrings. And if they had less than 90 degrees straight leg raise, we said, yes, you qualify for the study. And then they picked a number out of the hat and half of them were sent to me for myofascial release. Mm-hmm. Half were sent to one of my students who did uh, shiatsu massage. Okay. The half that came to me that got myofascial release, I did a whole body evaluation. And if they had a pelvic abnormality, I might've used the wedges to, to uh, diminish that rotation of the pelvis. And I, I probably did a bilateral leg pull. I, and I did a whole body treatment for 20 minutes, including uh, releasing directly over the quads and the hamstrings and the psoas. The shiatsu massage person used her elbow and did deep connective tissue massage work on the hamstring group and perhaps the, the IT band. And then we recorded the straight leg raise immediately following treatment. Well, everybody improved. Everybody improved past 90 degrees. So we took the immediate post measurement. Then 30 minutes later, they still improved. We had the two groups. Then 30, then uh, 24 hours later, they still showed better than they signed up with. The, the range of motion was better than what they signed up with. Mm-hmm. And then seven days later. And seven days later, what we saw was there was a degradation, degradation toward the previous uh, pre-treatment level of the people who got the massage. The -hmm. people who received the myofascial release stayed higher longer. They started to degrade too, but they stayed higher longer. That that observation tracks, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that was my study. And I did this with uh, 50 university students in my university and then another university in town. Well, by the time I went back to do the seven day post, I had about 10 people. Because group. people don't comply. Yeah. So I, I reported the results anyway, and I sent it to the journal and the journal said, my journal, physical therapy. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they said, well, we can't use this because the data is just not uh, robust enough. They wouldn't even give it a pilot? No. Pass? Wow. No. So do you think um, they had a bias <laughs> well, <laughs> against what you were trying to show? Physical therapy was trying at the time to become a premier journal. Okay. And to publish this article would not have helped suited their, their editorial agenda. Got it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At the time, I didn't know about the um, uh, the International Body Work and Movement Therapy Journal, but as time went on, I did more studies. I got one published on two women with kyphoscoliosis that had wonderful outcomes in terms of function. They could function better. They could stand at the at the at the sink and and do um, the dishes. They could 
um, they, they had better posture, they had less pain. At these two women in their 80s, and I, we compared them. And these are my students, of course, because they had to do a research project and they worked with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I published one on, um, uh, I didn't publish it, it was on golfers and trying to improve golf swing and, and distance. And we did myofascial release with them, and boy, their golf swing and the, and the, and their distance improved dramatically. As did their low back pain mm-hmm. dramatically. We presented that at a national conference for the sports people. Uh-huh. And and then the final one in 2011, I did this interesting study on um, myofascial release as a treatment for a patient with complications of rheumatoid arthritis, arthritis and collagenous colitis. Yeah. And it was a case report. And we did it exactly the way case reports should be done. That is, we took really excellent history. We, we did um, tests that were proven to be valid tests. And the tests that we did were cervical range of motion, which she was limited in. Um, and then we, uh, we, we gave a description of the myofascial release treatment session so that we could, so people could tell for reliability purposes exactly what did we do in this sustained release myofascial release. And then um, a subjective gastrointestinal report talking about her irritable bowel syndrome, the diarrhea and the abdominal pain. Um, and then we did uh, pain, of course, and fatigue. We looked at fatigue and we, we documented, we did treatment um, for uh, four weeks, three, three treatments a week. And then we, and and, uh, and no, two weeks. And then at the end of two weeks, we took pre and post. And then at the end of two weeks, we waited. But then we brought her in at week five and said, how are, and their his symptoms all improved, dramatically improved, improved to the, ex, the extent that she was, uh, she was on um, methotrexate and they took her off methotrexate, the chemotherapy for her rheumatoid arthritis. Um, hmm. To read the summary, um, uh, when compared to the initial evaluation and the subsequent eight treatments of the entire 11-week study, the patient showed improvements in cervical and systemic pain. Cervical flexion was maintained throughout the study. Left rotation, while variable throughout the study, had the same value at baseline and the final treatment, so there was no improvement there. But the ranges of all other cervical motions improved from initial evaluation. And we had the numbers and tables with all the numbers she reported complete alleviation of fatigue, GI symptoms. The rheumatoid nodule had completely diminished. She had a, a four centimeter nodule on the bottom of her foot that went away totally. However, and we did these, these, this initial treatment series and then brought mm-hmm. her back after two weeks and after four weeks and after six weeks. And then in the sixth week, she went through a very stressful weekend. Her husband had died and she went to his office to clean up and she went full blown back into her symptoms. We brought her back to do the post six week and she saw in eight weeks and we saw how much in pain she was and we couldn't let her go. So we treated her again. So took initial readings, treated Mm -hmm. her again. She improved again. So. Um, we here we had this marvelous longitudinal case study with excellent um, um, detail of what we did, 
excellent um, description of the changes in the values by, by tests that are, are agreed to be valuable. The rheumatoid test was an arthritis test, is an approved test. And so I didn't try to give it to my journal because it was a case report, but I gave it to the International Journal of Therapeutic Massage and Body Work and Leon's group um, published it. Yeah. And so that, that got published. And so I realized that's really the way you have to go. And, and I just like to, and I know I've been talking a long time, David, but can I just. No, no, no. You're just, doing great. Keep going. Can I just, can I just summarize that, that the randomized style treatment is based on the principles of reductionism. We want to reduce the variables to mm -hmm. such an extent out of fear of contaminating evidence. We want to reduce it to such an extent that we have to have a very vertical role. And that is, there's a, a, a vertical style that the, the, there's a superior, inferior, the, the, the therapist and the evaluator is superior, the patient is inferior. Um, we get data from the patient, but we do everything and we do everything according to protocol, fixed dynamics. Mm -hmm. You have to do everything the same to try to make sure that you're not biasing by changing the level of activity or changing the sequence. It's cognitive, it's quantitative in nature, and there are rigid rules to be followed and it, it for validity and reliability because then other people have to be able to go and do what you did and get the right. same results sure. in order to be able to get um, to validate. Well, could it be could it be that for some aspects of medicine, that's an appropriate way to go. Say testing a vaccine, Absolutely. where you're Chemistry dealing with one thing in a large population yep. that's affected by it. But you know, I Absolutely. I could treat, and I have uh, the same basic condition, whether it's a frozen shoulder or low back pain six times with all six people in one day and the treatment has been different each time because and the results are different each time because they're different people who do different, different things exactly. and have a different relationship with how they move and use their body exactly and you different change than a vaccine that's right and you would modify that as you're going because that's right. a horizontal relationship based on the that's results a, that you get that's yes. not a vertical relationship that's a horizontal relationship you're not trying to prove anything to anybody you're trying to be present in the moment with patient sovereignty. You're allowing the patient to give you verbal and nonverbal because you're feeling, you're experiencing mm -hmm. energetically what's happening. Am I, am I achieving what I set out to do here? So in a horizontal relationship, it's a, there's a democracy. There's, there's an equal involvement of both people. Mm -hmm. Well, I, both I, my listeners are probably tired of hearing me say this, but um, I, every time somebody comes to see me for the first time, I, at some point in that initial interview, I say, look, I may be an expert in how all these parts piece, I may be an expert in how all these parts and pieces fit and work together, but that doesn't make me the expert in you. Yes. So you need to tell me what's Excellent. going on, what's working, what isn't working, what Excellent. is, oh, this is working better, but now this thing's bothersome. Because then between those two things, we're going to get you the best result possible. And, and that's, that's a dynamic what we believe, relationship. And that's what we believe, uh, those of, who follow um, the method that the sustained release biofascial release that, that, John, that John Barnes has taught, 
that's just my my orientation to this whole work mm-hmm. that that both people have contributions to make and yeah. that and that what you're doing changes moment to moment depending on the response of the person yeah. and that there's a there's a um, you emphasize caregiving and um, and integrating integrating imagination and curiosity into the treatment and and making it come alive in the moment Every time a new patient came into me, I didn't say, how's your pain? I always, my first question I always asked was, what's different today than the last time I saw you? Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's so we exactly the at, question to ask. Yeah. I was asking for their perspective. Then I got their clothes off. They, I, I treat in a bathing suit or in a in right. shorts. Mm-hmm. I, Same here. Same here. Posturally, what's different? Because mm-hmm. we treat on top, on top of the skin. Posturally, what changes? And I have them go to the to the um, to the to the mirror, and I have a little laser pointer. John teaches with a laser pointer. It says, mm-hmm. "Okay, what do you see here? See high shoulder here, or rotated pelvis here, and take the take the broad view. Don't don't start looking at parts. Physical mm-hmm. therapists want to come at and look at the parts and look at the problem part. And and what we teach is you, you have to take the broad view. Where is something off, left to right? Where is something off top to bottom? Where it, is there a twist in the system? And then, and then kind of deciding, figuring out, having watched strolling under the skin, having understood, having done cadaver dissections, having, having realized the, the web, the concept of the web. And then uh, saying, I think that, I think, and this is my left brain, mm-hmm. I think today, integrating all of this uh, what i'd like to do is is start here i say well okay would you lie on the table on your back please i get them on the table and all of a sudden that that pelvic twist that thoracic twist is shouting at me and i say okay back up not going to start there you're not going to start with the pelvis you're going to start gently with the thorax and moving in using the osteopathic direct Mm -hmm. moving into the distortion and mm-hmm. settling in there and getting out of my left brain and going, centering myself and getting into my body and feeling what's going under my hands until I feel the fascia start to respond to the treatment. And I feel the fascia doing this underneath and reorganizing itself. Mm-hmm. And I establish the, 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 the imperative, the imperative that I'm not inserting anything here. I'm not, I'm not fixing anything. I'm, Helping energy flow through me, through my hands, and through my heart, and through my body, and through my energy into a system that has the perfect example of being perfect ability to correct itself. It just needs a little nudge. It might need a little nudge into compression. It might need a little nudge into tension. It might need a little nudge into uh, vibration. But the fashion knows what to do with that. And well, it's it's a matter of input, and that's that that's a beautiful that's right. way to that's a beautiful way to express it. Uh, I come at it. Um, I I come at this from a little less of a new age perspective, and let's face it, new age is middle age at this point. Um, but yeah, thank you, thank you for accepting the joke, um, because I I I remember. Okay, so there was a period in my career where I was working above a new age bookstore 
and uh, they had a coterie of different um, disciplines there, you know, Reiki, reflexology, all of the things. And at that time, I was a clinical massage therapist uh, who does a, a number of different things. But my goal was always, how do I get you out of pain and keep you there um, and actually improve the situation in a reasonable number of treatments? Uh, right. At the same time, I believe you could do that and be deeply relaxing. And here was the thing. Within six months, I was the busiest person at the bookstore. And within nine months, they were asking me to leave. Because, uh, yeah, oh, I got all kinds of BS reasons. I don't even want to go into it. Um, you know, <laughs> um, none of which none of which turned out to be true. So I, um, you know. You weren't sharing your income, obviously. Well, well, yeah, yeah, they got a percentage well, that everybody that I saw. You betcha, you betcha. <laughs> but you know, uh, I wasn't touchy feely enough. I wasn't like energetic enough. You know, it's like oh, you know, oh, it's I like see. go to go to Boulder, go to Boulder, Colorado, and try to have a talk with somebody about trauma and watch them be traumatized by just having a discussion about trauma. And you're like, sure. wait a minute here. So, so when I touch a person, I am very anatomically specific about what my contact is, where it is, and why right. I'm going there first, and that I'm trying to engender a change that I'm accessing the tissue right. to create a change via the mechanoreceptors that respond to pressure and vibration and right. stretch. And we know that if we insist that the person pay attention and not check out we get better results That's than right. if they can go to la la land and and i have a very specific structure to that now what actually is happening under my hands while that's going on and how i am in the moment changing the pressure the depth the contour and conforming my my hand or my ulna to the surface that i'm working on that's all in the stuff i don't know how you measure and there are some times, and I think this speaks to what you were saying too, where, and this is with somebody I've usually seen at this point eight or nine times, because to me initially, the parts of the puzzle that don't form the full picture uh, are real obvious in the beginning, and they get broader and more subtle as you go on. Uh, but it'll be like a half an hour goes by, and I'm like, I have no idea how I would possibly chart this. I have no idea how, if I had to report to you what we just did for a a trial we were doing, I could explain the procedures I just did and in what order and why. So right. to kind of bring this back around, um, we can't do a vertical trial in this, in, in manual. Can we do vertical, vertical oriented things in manual therapy or how do we design a horizontal approach that actually can measure something? And in a provable way that makes people say, oh, okay, yeah, that works. Let's pay more focus and attention over here. That's a right. big question. I, I think the main questions are, what can we do to preserve a record of what we've done or what we do and how to think, do it, yeah. how we do it to determine our outcomes? And then how do we record the outcomes in an equal way to be able to report it and, and then to be able to repeat and to generalize? That's for reliability. And then for validity, how do we avoid what's conceived of as bias um, to what we are doing um, to get this outcome? And, and it's a belief system. And 
and so when people, when my colleagues kept saying, Carol, you're just basing it on the stuff that you learn from this physical therapist who, who's just biased. And, and I said, no, there's science behind this. They said, what kind of science? I'm looking for the randomized trials. I said, there's cellular science. And that's why Paul Stanley means so much to me. And me too. Because he was one of the first people to come out. They, they were Petri dish studies. They were in vitro studies, but they showed that compression and elongation of, of, of fascia uh, introduced into the system cytokines, interleukin-8, interleukin-3, interleukin-3, uh, and interleukin-1b, I think, or 2b. Um, nitric oxide formation, Eight can interleukin eight can either be pro or anti-inflammatory, and so then that opens up the whole scheme of well, wait a minute, when is it pro-inflammatory? When is it anti-inflammatory? And what do we really want here? Well, we want pro-inflammatory at a new wound. We want the inflammatory system to come in and help right. clean up that system, but we want anti-inflammatory with cancer. We want anti-inflammatory with autoimmune disease. So what are we doing? Those cytokine studies are very important. And then in Granada, Spain, they they did the in vivo studies. And that's what I introduce in, in integrative therapies and rehabilitation, my textbook. Yeah, I will be a link to that in the show notes, kids. Yeah, I, mm -hmm. I, I integrate, I, I, I report the studies uh, on Barnes myofascial release that show that, that, that make a difference in the cytokine um, uh, distribution before treatment and after treatment in in this in the in vitro studies and then the in vivo studies that are 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 evaluated through um saliva tests and, and cortisol levels so reliability and validity of what we're doing we i think we have a an ethical obligation to pay attention and to record what we're doing but i don't believe that that should be at the sacrifice of providing um patient care where the patient is sovereign, where we are paying attention to in the moment, to being present. I like to look at healing as, as alleviating suffering and cultivating well-being. I took that from my favorite acupuncturist, uh, Dan Neville. Healing mm -hmm. is alleviating suffering and cultivating well-being. So in that sense, that's a, that's a nice, that's a really good definition. You don't need a degree, you know, grandmothers and and parents with children and friends, you don't need a degree to be a to be facilitating healing. Likewise, very quickly, I don't believe that I'm a healer. Mm -hmm. I believe that the healing takes place within the person and that we are meant to be healed. And what we're doing is restoring homeodynamics to the place where everything can work in concert with each other. All the systems can work. And so that the person can come back into balance and that relative balance is what we call, boy, that feels good. I feel, I feel there's no, there's less pain. I love that. That's what we call, boy, that feels good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I feel, I feel lighter. So I can we, lighter. I so feel, can we, can we create a boy that feels good scale? Right. <laughs> and then that exactly. becomes, that becomes, that becomes the new measurement. So well, we're talking about how do we, how do we help? Um, medicine. How do we help uh, science study and this better? science. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. How do we help science learn how to study this better on a macro scale? Because like on the micro scale and the Paul Stanley stuff, it's right. brilliant. And if you look at that, it explains everything that we do. 
Right. Uh, but that's that that's so micro. Not so, not everything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but not everything, but but a lot. A, but a lot of it. A lot of yeah. it. Uh, the, the big takeaway, in case you're not familiar with that, listeners, is that 60 seconds of compression in shear with stretch can undo eight hours of strain hardening from repetitive motion. So every time I say that, every time I see that, it's like, this is not rocket science anymore. This is not mysticism. There, there are actual effects that are happening uh, beyond what maybe is being felt. Yeah. Uh, and that sets into motion the healing. Um, but when you deal with humans, these sculptures that we work on that get up and walk away and come back a week later uh, and have adapted or not adapted or something usually in between adapting to what we did from one session to the next, uh, how can we possibly create a study that would measure that in a quantifiable way that people would say, well, that's legit? Well, I think we have to be very precise in documenting. But I don't think the real breakthrough is going to come for about 10 or 20 more years. I watched a wonderful three-hour gathering on Zoom of 238 scientists on Saturday who were looking at how do we move medicine and science and healthcare. They were looking at science mm. out of materialism mm. and into understanding the value of uh, immeasurable, uh, non-concrete reality. And so more in the direction about, of vitalism? Yes, they were talking okay. about flow. They were talking about intuition. One mm -hmm. of the main speakers was Ivan Alexander, who's written the book, um, Proof of Heaven, a physician, neuroscientist, neuro, mm -hmm. um, neurosurgeon, who went into coma and came back and, and recorded his experience, his near-death experience. And, and had experiences that happened to him that are not explainable by any concrete materialistic explanation in that he over in his coma connected to a young a woman, a young girl in, the, in this form of a butterfly. And she explained to him that she was his sister. And he said he didn't have a sister. And he came back to out of coma and uh, came back and be, was able to then describe what happened and did the background search. And of course came up with the realization that yes, he did have a sister. And yes, her name was Hannah or whatever the name was that, that his, uh, his mother uh, tells him. And she did die. And wow. so he didn't know about this before. And so, the near-death studies are starting mm -hmm. to open up science to ideas. Rupert Sheldrake, of course, has yeah. been leading the, the way with, with um, the whole idea of uh, the morphogenic resonance and how animals pick up information that's, of course, not written down, but somehow the species carries information across the airwaves, across long distances. One of the best quotes that I picked up is that when science recognizes that this this curious idea of non-locality would two yeah. particles that were joined separate and you mm -hmm. act on one, the other over long, long distances shows the action immediately action at a distance. And Einstein hated that idea. Yes. Spooky, because spooky because action at a distance. Spooky yes. action at a distance. And, yeah. and, yeah. The, and this marvelous scientist said when people, and he's doing animal studies and cellular studies, he said, when people recognize that non-locality is nothing more 
than bonded resonance. And we have bonded resonance in identical twin studies. We have oh, yeah. been a part of where my sister and I were in a study and under experimental conditions, our EEGs were taken. She closed her eyes in a room down the hall when the light came on, her EEG changed from beta to more delta. I did not close my eyes. The light did not come on. I did, and my brainwave changed at the very same moment to more out of beta to more delta toward delta. I was 20 years old, mm. and I said that uh, we are we are I, we are connected. Yeah, and and that started my search. What is it that connects us? It, and it's fun to do the ESP. We bought the same code on the same day, and. She in Rochester, New York, and me in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, you know, I was in graduate school. And so we we have these experiences that we can't we can't describe through materialism, but we can describe something that's happening with brainwave studies, something that's happening with intuition. But we know that brainwaves, when we're looking at brainwaves, we're looking at an oscilloscope, we're looking at a configuration of a wave, we're looking at two waves coming together in resonance. We're looking at the effect of that on pendulums that are swinging and they all come into harmony with each other. And so we can see that waveform acting in the atmosphere. But we know that those brainwaves that we're, that we're, that we're measuring aren't like sound waves. There's something else. And what we're finding out, and the International Society for Pain Research is leading the way on this, is mm -hmm. there's no one thing in terms of brainwaves that's, that's identifiable as separate from everything else. Everything is connected. Every experience of pain that I have, every feeling that I have, that when it goes to the insular cortex and the somatosensory cortex, it is bathed in conscious and unconscious past experiences. And David, that's why so many of our patients are relieved of unconscious traumatic effect on their neuromuscular system with what we do. It's part, we're helping them to open up stuff that's been, that hasn't been explored, that's been shelved, that's in there somewhere. It's in the fascia. It's in the brain. Who knows? The neurocentrists will say, "No, that's totally that's, that's <laughs> <laughs> the fascia." People say, no, yeah, it's yeah. The uh -huh. Well, we we don't know for for sure, but well, we, do there, we had life before we had a brain. So I, I have a I have a bone. If you'll forgive the pun, I have a bone to pick with them about that. <laughs> well, yeah, they have colony organisms that that can <laughs> mate and swim and reproduce and have no central nervous system. Exactly right. So, What's that about? So when science finally decides that this is worth studying, taking into consideration the effect mm -hmm. of our thoughts on plants and trees is coming out now and the effect of trees on each other with the mycelial network. Oh, yeah, the network. whole mycelial network. Yeah. yeah, that's crazy stuff. When they finally start getting interested and curious about this, there's going to be a breakthrough. And you know what's going to happen, David? It's just like Barnes says, you know what's going to happen? There'll people be people along and say, oh, I don't believe that stuff. And then they'll, you know, they'll say, well, yeah. And then they'll say, no, I believe that all along. I believe that all along. And <laughs> Everybody knows have, that. Everybody knows that. We have so, a paradigm shift. But the scientists said on, on, this, on this show, 
what the, what they said was it's the International Society Study for the Study of Science or whatever. Is it something I can like find on YouTube? Because I think I need to watch this. I I need to go back and look at what was. Yeah, because um, this this sounds like a conversation is, I want to hear. It was recorded. It, it is. Yeah. It, it, I couldn't get away from it because it mm -hmm. was so well done. Because because the thing the risk I'm always running is 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 uh, if I get too hardcore science, then I lose my sense of wonder, and I don't want that to yes, happen. Yes, that's what they're uh, talking about. At the same but time, there's a lot of. You know, there is a lot of often very well-meaning BS out there, too. Uh, and you want to kind of not waste your well, time on those things. And they said that. The Kumbaya studies are hard to publish. But mm -hmm. scientific American will study, will, will publish hypotheses that aren't proven yet, that are grounded. That's where Ingrid oh, did yeah. his work. Ingrid did his work in the 80s. Yes. Mechanotransduction by publishing in Scientific American, saying, look, something's happening. At this, at the skin level, down to the nucleus of the cell, and this is how it's happening. These are the cellular me mechanics of how it happens. But, but the other thing that I wanted to point out was that a wonderful woman by the name of Jude. Um, oh gosh, I can't remember her last name. She's interested in 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 um, cosmic uh, level research as well as as uh -huh. research on the planet. And she said, I don't know whether it was she or someone else said. It's not going to be a paradigm shift the way we know it when this all starts to. Oh, good, because I'm tired of paradigm shifts. This getting well, so cliche. It's not going to be like everybody decides, okay, well, yeah, the sun really is the center of the universe. And yeah. Mm -hmm. Galileo or right. It's not going to be like that. It's going to be an opening up of a whole new way of being. And even Alexander says, I like to, to look at it as what the, 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 the concepts that you get by taking psilocybin or or mushrooms or lsd and mm -hmm. you get a you get a keyhole look into whoa whoa there's something there's something there yeah versus the near-death experience it's a whole view and of course uh brian weiss's stuff on on past lives that kind of information and the medical intuitives that are so correct in their identifying the pathology and the location of the pathology just by reading, you know, um, reading somebody's energy. How how do they yeah. do that? But 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 what about medical intuitives who aren't good at it? Oh well, that you know. I mean, I be, that then that's where I kind of this folks. is where I get like, well, well, all right, but then, uh, you know, David, as a species, sell, we're good at fooling ourselves. They did so sell petroleum we, and the snake oil. They did that. Some people did that. Yeah. Some people poisoned people. And, and I want to ask you about that too, getting back to the Germans and the light, because yeah. that's, um, you know, in Bongen ducks and all that. Um, but so like when so the, up, when the guy down the street says, put your leg in this thing and we're going to put these blue lights on it. And it's like this pad full of blue LEDs. And I'm going, really? But when you tell me they're actually putting it into that area intravenously, I'm like, okay, that I'll buy better. Well, these, now, like, and they're taking studies to show change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but these other things like these, um, you know, the the these things that you uh, these self treatment light therapy things. Um, do, have you looked into those? What do you know about those? I know, I know, they're doing some great stuff at Tufts on a helmet that has mm -hmm. infrared uh, laser, um, okay. and they're doing the the brain studies to show change. Um, Becker William William Becker, I think his name is in Germany. Do the Google. Scholar search, do mm -hmm. um, uh, um, infrared and ultralight, ultraviolet light as as treatment. 
Chikuka and Wameka, my, my colleague in San Diego, is a, he's a Nigerian scientist, physical therapist. We work together at Miami. He's doing infrared studies. I'm every morning in a box that, in an infrared sauna mm-hmm. for 10 to 15 minutes at 175 degrees to try to sweat out the toxins that are invading my system from late chronic Lyme that have oh, invaded wow. my nerves so that I have axonal polyneuropathy mm-hmm. in my legs and I no longer can flex my fingers. I can extend and I can treat, but I've lost my grip and my thumbs work, but my fingers no longer flex. And so oh my, oh my. So I'm tr- doing everything I can. I was mm-hmm. diagnosed uh, in 2016, but these symptoms started in 2011. And I think the tick bite was in 2003, but my immune system did great with it until I had surgery. And I had general anesthesia on a, a Oh, and that kind of, yeah, did a number. So we're talking, are we talking neurotoxins specifically yes. here? Okay. Yes. Because, so my question to you is if somebody would say, what do you mean getting rid of toxins? I mean, that's what your liver does. So you don't need that. How would... Well, I wish my liver would do better. <laughs> when I was, and when I was, uh, I, I don't have a ultra clean liver, David. Nobody does. Nobody does. In my 20s and 30s and 40s. But but then I, I did chelation to get the lead out and the mm-hmm. and the beryllium and the and I did 20, 20 chemotherapies of chelation to pull of assault to pull the toxins, the lead and the heavy metals out of my bones and muscles. My kidneys um, ached um, and my liver went off the chart. And and my and I I had to get my liver back into balance. So I stayed away from uh, all toxins, salt, sugar, alcohol, uh, caffeine. Mm-hmm. And then I, I um, and uh, gluten. Main, main line, the milk thistle. Right. And ashwagandha. Yeah, seriously, seriously. Milk yeah. thistle, ashwagandha, um, um, Medcaps Pro, DPO, um, um, Neuroprotex. There are a lot of supplements now that my functional medicine neurologist, a, a wonderful, traditionally trained neuro, neurologist MD, who then studied functional medicine and did 40, 46 lab tests, five urine tests, four stool tests to really diagnose me well. And the Epstein bar was off the chart, and that was my fatigue. So we had to pull it back. I went on, on, um, on, Doxy, um, what's the what's the doxycycline? Doxycycline for, for antibiotic twice a day for a year messed up my microbiome. Didn't do much for the Lyme at all for because mm. it was hiding in the fascia. So I have to find a way to pull it out. Yeah, and it's these yeah. it's these herbal remedies, the supplements. Everybody who has Lyme, chronic Lyme, is different. It's going to be the same for COVID nineteen. The, the long lifers, they, it's, a, it's an autoimmune distortion. So, so here's, 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 a, here's a speculative question. When you're dealing with somebody who seems to have, we're going to just put the label on it, neuropathic pain, um, that seems to result from an injury that to look at the injury seems to, the injury doesn't seem to be severe enough right. for the lingering effects. And I'm talking years here. Yeah. Um, is that possible that, cause you know, some people 
get Lyme, it gets detected early, they, they, they do the things and they get over it? Or is it possible that even at that, that there is still something from Lyme disease in the system and that's why these things happen? The, um, there's a new study out called A New Definition of Pain, Updated Implications for Physical Therapy Practice and Rehabilitation Science. And the International Association for the Study of Pain has come out with a new definition of pain. I'm answering your question. It may not feel like I know. I know you are. I know you are. <laughs> but um, thanks for clarifying for the listener. <laughs> yeah. um, there's a new definition of pain. And there, there was criticism that pain was reduced to the Melzack and Wall, the gate pain theory, neurological, right. somatosensory input. And so um, what the change of the definition was is, is to get us away from looking at pain as a singular experience, singular neurological experience. The new definition of pain, an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience mm -hmm. associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. Oh. Unpleasant sensory and emotional associated with or resembling associated with actual or potential tissue that damage. is that is that is on point that is on point this is the international society for iasp the international association for the study of pain subcommittee mm. on taxonomy and this Ooh. is a 2021 2021 article okay we'll we'll find that for the show notes listeners New for sure wow that's pain. awesome Carol, I just uh, we're we're coming up on uh, we're coming up on running out of time, but I think I need to have you back about a half a dozen more because I feel like we're just <laughs> getting warmed up here. But I I, I got to call you out. You lied to me. Uh oh. <laughs> you said you were retiring. You have no. not retired. <laughs> I've I've just branched into more science scholarship and science and. Mm -hmm. Thank you, though, David. I, I so enjoyed teaching this material because as, as, as the world opens up to me in science and basic science, I see how things need to change. And I'm so excited to use myself as, a, as mm -hmm. an identical twin as a subject, as a myofascial release therapist. As a You're subject. an identical twin. I am. That's the that connection at 20, where our Whoa. brain changed. Um, and I'm living with my identical twin sister now. We're back living together after... <laughs> That's fun years. at parties. That's fun at parties. Yeah. yeah. So um, we, we started out by talking about levels of evidence and their role in evidence-based medicine. And, and what mm -hmm. I think we need to realize is that when we are going to be meaningful, um, be involved in meaningful healing enterprise, where we talk about healing as a, alleviation of suffering and cultivating well-being, we have to talk about horizontal relationships. We have to talk about the importance of narrative medicine and patient sovereignty. We have to talk about holistic care and we have to talk about how do we show that we can, can, can perform our treatments, our diagnoses and treatments in reliable and valid ways so that science understands that we're working within the constraints of a framework where we value, where the value doesn't come from, it, does, it, it moves from the statistics mm -hmm. and being able to reproduce statistics to moving to the patient's sovereignty and being present to the patient in the moment, which 
which harkens back to the original idea of what it means to be to participate in the healing process. Yes, and I, I keep thinking back to Dr. Braden. So Dr. Braden was was down on State Avenue, and Dr. Braden worked out of his house. Uh, Dr. Braden lived to be 103 years old and was still consulting with Swickley Valley Hospital in his 90s. But uh, I can remember when I dislocated a finger playing football in the backyard and I went down to see Dr. Braden and he looked at it and it was about, you know, an inch tall and felt like it was about a foot wide. Uh, and he, he took an x-ray right there in the office, made sure that the bone wasn't broken or splintered yeah. and yanked it back into place, set it, splinted it and sent me on my way. Uh, it took maybe, I don't know, 45 minutes, maybe an hour. Uh, I was really pissed off at him too because he said let me see your finger there and then he yanked it back into place oh yeah uh -huh. and i said why did you tell me you're gonna do that he said well would you have let me if i did no and i was like ah good point good point doc um but you know this this would take hours to do now with you know it's just and, like, and thousands of dollars yeah, 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 yeah. I, just, I, so I, off point, I find myself musing about the, this newer model, um, the, the new old model, like where we'd have like a functional medicine doctor uh, and somebody else in, in like you'd have the basic equipment there. Uh, and they did have people like you, people like me, whatever, whatever, whatever. And this medical suite, if you will. So, because if, if we're looking at the person holistically, we still need someone to overall evaluate and decide where to start. Because that's 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 the, you know, if, if everything's all connected, we still need somebody to figure out which connection we need to work first. You know, and then leave the big, sexy, expensive stuff and machines that go ping to the bigger hospitals for, for crazy stuff like, you know, genetic liver damage and these, 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 you know, all the crazy things that Western medicine is good at. Uh, that we do need. As Andrew Weil says, if I get into a car accident, I'm not going to go to my herbalist. I'm going to go to the ER. So and I want to tell you that my supplements and my uh, my infrared sauna have, have brought my liver well back into normal range. Congratulations. That's so, so great. You got me I'm, thinking I'm about getting one my, now. My daily, I, have, I, I drink a little Jagermeister every day. That's my treat. <laughs> 46 herbs and alcohol. <laughs> No, well, it's interesting. My, my favorite, my favorite gin is Monkey Forty Seven. It has forty seven uh -huh. herbs yeah. and botanicals, <laughs> and exactly. gin is a muscle relaxer. So I, I, I guess I can prescribe that therapeutically. Right. Uh, endorse it. No, I don't prescribe. I don't prescribe. But for <laughs> don't want to get into trouble here with uh, the powers that be. Carol, thanks for coming on today. This has been a blast beyond anything that I was anticipating. You were awesome to have on, and it's we'll great. have you on again. I'm sure. You're a great okay. listener. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you very much. And remember, listeners, if you have a question for any of our guests, you can send those to me at bodytalkdavid at gmail.com. And uh, we'll be getting some question and answer shows going here with the experts. Till then, see you next time on Body Talk. Thank you for listening to another episode of Body Talk. Any questions, questions for me, questions for our guest, send me an email bodytalkdavid at gmail.com or you can use the Anchor app and send me a voice memo. How cool is that? I'm David Lasondak. Join me next week when we continue to explore your inner universe on Body Talk. <laughs>